I'm Casey Bell from the Google Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, did you know that you can uh, buy me a soft drink? (laughs) That's right. You can support Teaching Learning Leading K-12 by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Mileto. And uh, on my page, you'll notice that I said, uh, hey, why don't you buy me a soft drink, right? (laughs) And you'll help support the show and help it keep it going and uh, uh, help uh, by making a donation. That'd be so cool. So check out buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Mileto. Thanks. I appreciate it. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Suzanne Reptimali. She is the author of Can You Hear Me Now? Join the conversation to make public education a better choice. We talk about school dysfunction and bureaucracy that needs to be changed, her recognition as a recipient of the National PTA's Life Achievement Award, and her focus on trying to help her son overcome his auditory challenges. Thanks for listening. So much to learn today. By the way, could you help me out? Could you go into that app that you're listening to me on and uh, rate and review the uh, uh, the show? That would be so awesome. Pretty please with a little bit of sugar on top. <laughs> Thanks so much. Enjoy. District leaders nationwide have confirmed that online learning is here to stay. As one in five districts are planning to adopt or have already adopted a fully online school. With the evolving landscape in the competitive field of education, you might be wondering what you can do to stand out. Well, I encourage you to look into National Virtual Teacher Association, or NVTA, to pursue a college-accredited program recognized by states across the country to certify educators in online education. Their certification empowers educators to provide the world-class virtual instruction that every student deserves. The average teacher needs one semester to complete the program, and it culminates in a digital portfolio that you may use in job interviews or even with your current administration to, you know, (laughs) negotiate a raise or promotion. Some of the topics to be covered in the certification include establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources. The NVTA certification process was created to establish a valid and reliable research-based teacher qualification training process for virtual teachers to enhance their teaching and develop their ongoing reflective skills to improve teaching capacity. NVTA certification is a challenging and meaningful process to support your personal and professional goals. NVTA is an affiliate partner for Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Click the link in the show notes or go to my webpage, stephenmaletto.com, find the NVTA logo and go to their website that way. And if you do that, if you buy something, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission and I greatly thank you for that. So go check them out. I think you'll be glad you did. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Suzanne Rupp DeMalley taught for seven years in the Baltimore County Public School System. Research into her own son's learning difficulties led her to author the Classroom Auditory Learning Issues Resolution, adopted by the National PTA in July 2007. Her work has appeared in Our Children Magazine, THE Journal, Townsend Times, and the 
Baltimore Sun. She has presented at the National School Boards Association's annual convention to national, state, and local PTA groups and to politicians. Suzanne was awarded the National PTA's Lifetime Achievement Award in May 2007, the highest honor from the nation's largest child advocacy organization. Today, we're going to focus on her book, Can You Hear Me Now? Join the conversation to make public education a better choice. A little bit about Can You Hear Me Now? As a parent, Damali fought a nationwide battle against bureaucracy for the simple, common-sense idea that children in the back of a classroom should be able to hear their teacher. Now, as a teacher herself, Damali is speaking loud and clear, fighting public school dysfunction on the inside. Can You Hear Me Now? walks parents and teachers through everything they need to know, make a difference in their local district and beyond, from the most basic questions they should be asking to the most effective steps they can uh, take to make their voices heard. Suzanne, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad that you're here, and uh, let's start here. Let's start with this. Could you share a little bit about what you learned about your son and the way he processed auditory signals in kindergarten, uh, as well as how it impacted his learning? Sure. Um, my son, Christopher, when he was in kindergarten, was diagnosed with an auditory processing deficit. And basically what that means is his, his ears worked perfectly normal. They were capturing all the auditory signals, but his brain had difficulties in processing those signals. In other words, to identify what those sounds were, um, to discriminate between different sounds, and then ultimately to comprehend what he was hearing. And this impacted um, academically reading especially, um, because reading is, you know, based on phonics and, and sounds and that phonemic recognition. Um, it also impacted um, just auditory recognition in the classroom, um, just different sounds that he was hearing. He had a very strong right ear preference. So depending on how he was situated, he might not pick up all the sounds and process them correctly um, through his left ear. Um, his speech was greatly impacted. Um, and a lot of these problems just really caused him to sort of withdraw from the classroom activities. Um, he didn't enjoy participating in activities. Um, he was he, he wasn't the type of kid to act out, but he was kind of more the kid who would fly under the radar because he would just kind of pull himself to the side. Um, socially, it was just hard for him to engage. And I really, you know, saw how hearing um, impacts not only academics, but just that whole psychosocial development as well. Appreciate you talking about that. That's, uh, yeah, that's, and, and talk about how problematic that could be. I mean, because we're talking about a kindergartner. Right. And uh, he was five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, five years old and not wanting to participate in all this sort of stuff that comes from not really being able to, to hear or comprehend some of the stuff that's being said because of you know, right. location can't help. <laughs> and his speech was so distorted because, um, you know, what I learned is he was speaking the way he had heard things and he wasn't always hearing sounds in the correct order. So, for example, the word fits, F-I-T-S, he might hear as fist, F-I-S-T. So he was saying things incorrectly. It was causing, you know, the other kids in the classroom to, to laugh because his speech sounded funny. Um, we all had, including myself, had a lot of difficulty just understanding what he was saying. Gotcha. So, so upon uncovering the challenges that your son was experiencing, you sought to help him and focused on learning whatever you could. Could you talk about what, you know, a little bit more about what you discovered as you're trying to help him? 
Sure. Um, you know, I started doing research just to understand his specific problem with auditory processing. And then I expanded that research to understand, well, how is any sort of hearing issue going to impact his ability to learn, particularly in a classroom environment where um, auditory learning is so important? So um, I did a lot of research on just in general, kids' ability to hear and then acoustics in the classroom. And what I discovered was that the classroom is really a, a poor environment, auditory environment for any child, regardless of whether they have any kind of hearing impairment or not, because the acoustics are typically very poor in a classroom. You have a lot of background noise and reverberation going on with those bare floors and, and high ceilings. And um, the teacher's voice drops over distance. And so kids that are seated, you know, more than a certain number of feet away from the teacher's voice are at a distinct disadvantage, whether again, they can hear or not. And this really relates to that all children do not have fully developed neurological auditory abilities until their teen years. So you put an adult and a child in the same room, such as a classroom, and the adult might be able to understand what they're hearing, you know, with that background noise going on, a child cannot. Um, because they actually need the teachers to voice to be a little bit louder and more clear. And in the process of discovering all this information, I also uncovered that there's a really simple, easy solution to all of this. And that is, you know, you give the teacher a wireless microphone and you put a speaker in the room um, or maybe multiple speakers in the ceiling and have that sound drop down. And the research shows that Every child in the classroom benefits from this type of technology because it shows academic improvement and behavior improvement, attention improvement. And it also benefits the teacher because the teacher's not straining their voice all day. So, you know, it's just a really cost-effective, easy solution to, to combat these issues that all children are facing every day. Gotcha. And, and uh, that's, uh, it's pretty cool. I've watched a couple of the videos and such, and actually um, I've, my time in Georgia schools. I mean, I've been in school systems where that they've installed uh, different uh, devices and such, and the teachers mm -hmm. use microphones and, and their speakers in there. And so uh, I've uh, experienced that as, as well as uh, from, a, from teaching and, uh, and as administrator. So um, good, good stuff there. Cause it does improve the quality of the sound, especially it makes an adult not have to uh, um, make their, make their voice loud anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I used one myself as a teacher and it really does, you know, it allows you to use a more conversational soothing tone rather than trying to yell to project your voice. And that has a dramatic effect on, on kids, just, you know, how they perceive the teacher, you know, right. <laughs> Makes a more friendly environment. Most definitely. Most definitely. Uh, so I got to ask this, I mean, what happened when you tried to get help within his school? Well, when he was in kindergarten, he was in a private kindergarten at that time at a, a nearby church, but I knew that he would be moving into the public system for first grade. So in March of his kindergarten year, um, my husband and I met with the public school and, you know, had a team meeting to try to get him some accommodations such as preferential seating and, and, um, we just were met, met with resistance. It was a very different situation from his private kindergarten. You know, when he was diagnosed in kindergarten, the doctors gave me reports and recommendations. I turned them over to the school and immediately the very next day, they started implementing all of those recommendations. Public school system, not quite so, so much. You have to go through um, you know, a, a long process and you have to prove a need. And you know, I was turning all of these private reports and studies over to them, um, you know, showing that he had some problems and what 
they were recommending should be done. And I was just met with resistance. The, I found that the team focused on the really good scores um, in all of those studies um, you know, that they had done on him. And they kind of sent, tended to gloss over or ignore some of the testing results that showed there was a problem. And because it was a processing issue, I think it was also a little bit harder to kind of um, convey the need for things as opposed to if it just been sort of a hearing impairment. We actually, my husband and I had obtained a portable sound system, like we were talking about, you know, a wireless teacher microphone and a speaker that could be just plugged in anywhere in the classroom. And we turned it over to the school and asked, would you put this in his classroom, you know, when he comes here? And they actually refused to do it. Um, so it was just really, you know, a, a completely different situation. And it was kind of the beginning of my public school experience, I guess. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's, right. uh, you know, I, I'm a former high school principal and I'm not sure I understand. I'd be curious to know why they put you through so much stuff, considering what you're asking for in the very beginning. Um, yeah, I wasn't asking for that much. You no. know, I really wanted preferential seating, um, speech and speech therapy for him and um, and them to use this speaker. And that was that was pretty much all I was asking for. <laughs> You know, it's, and so I just had to say, I just, sorry you went through that because that makes no sense. It makes, I mean, I, I think about uh, different accommodations that parents have asked for and, you know, unless it, uh, I mean, there's, I've, I've done, I mean, there's a lot of things that you just, I mean, what you just said, there's, it's so easy. There's no committee that needs to be involved in most of that, except for right. figuring out what, what accommodations otherwise might be necessary and right. involving testing and such, but, uh, so, uh, sorry you went through that. That's, uh, you know, one, one of the things that, uh, um, so what happens next is, I mean, your experiences lead you to author the classroom auditory learning issues resolution adopted by the national PTA in July, 2007. Could you share a little bit about that resolution? Yeah. Um, you know, I just really became a very strong advocate of, um, you know, educating, Edu educating educators about all of these auditory needs of kids in the classroom, and then also an advocate of using the teacher microphones and speakers. And I initially had gone to my local school board and, and really tried to push for this, um, which I was successful at. Within 10 months, they put $400,000 in their budget to start getting these in the schools. And then I wanted to expand that um, and really go on a national level and promote this and um, I needed, you know, support for that. So I started with the local PTA and we had written a resolution um, to support um, the education of these auditory issues and the use of this technology in the schools. And then the Maryland PTA sponsored a resolution that I wrote um, for the national PTA to, to gain their support as well. And, and that's really the resolution just covered, you know, all of the whereas statements that specified the need for this education and this technology in the schools, and then the two resolves, which were to, you know, promote that technology and promote that education. So um, I, when I was successful in getting this resolution ratified, I gained the support of about 6 million PTA members at that point. And, and that really gave me a lot of backing. Yeah, just a little bit. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. Right. And it's just interesting because I'd love to know the timing of things um, because, um, you know, I'm a high school principal at that time. And, uh, and I can remember the having meetings at the, our, our uh, district um, had meetings where they brought in some companies that were, they were looking at 
Um, and they were looking for volunteers at the time to, mm -hmm. to wear these devices and put speakers in. So it's, I mean, the timing, the years are right there. It's right at the same time. So, right. I, and, and that's, that's kind of funny you say that because since even, you know, this book has launched, um, I've had students and teachers approach me saying, wow, you know, we coincidentally went through the same thing that you're talking about, where our school started getting this right, you know, around the years that you were promoting it. And we had no idea where it was coming from. Yeah, that's, that's cool that you've heard that before, because that's because mm -hmm. uh, that explains a lot. And I because I think uh, and I'm pretty sure we had some pretty strong, pretty strong PTA organizations. So I'm pretty sure that uh, that your impact was there someplace where there's probably parents talking with them about it. But uh Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. So that, that's, it's so cool. So when I was reading this, I'm like, oh my gosh, that explains, <laughs> I'm, I'm understanding, you know, things are falling in line here. That's really neat. So, well, well cool. Uh, so let's shift to your book. Can you hear me now? Join the conversation to make public education a better choice. What inspired you to write your book? I mean, lots of people want to write a book and share their thoughts, but it never materializes, but you did it. How, why? Um, the idea to write a book initially came from my family. Um, I was just a teacher coming home and sharing stories at the dinner table with my family about my students and, you know, things that were just, um, frustrating with the bureaucracy, you know, being given a curriculum that you didn't think was the best or, um, you know, just testing situations and all the little frustrations that teachers um, and administrators deal with. And I was sharing that and my family would always say, you have to write this down. You have to write it down. And then in 2017, my oldest daughter um, was in college and she had invited me to be a speaker at a women in leadership event. And I initially declined because I said, you know, why would they want to hear from me? You know, I'm not a leader. And she said, mom, just come tell them your story. And so I eventually was convinced and I shared my story about promoting the sound equipment and then at the end, I shared a lot of, you know, my personal teaching experiences and, and afterwards the response was just overwhelming. I had, um, the audience consisted of faculty at the college and, and parents and, and friends, and they had come up to me afterwards. And so many of them said that they just really found my, um, my story to be very inspirational and, you know, they wanted to know more. So that kind of planted the seed a little bit more in my head. Um, and then I, encountered an experience in my school that really just kind of like turned the light switch on to say, you know what, I need to do this. Um, I had a student in my classroom that was on a first grade level in math and I was teaching fourth grade math. And he was also two years behind in reading. And I had brought him up to the student support team um, out of concern. And, you know, I tried using some research-based interventions to see if that would help. And after using the interventions and, you know, talking with his mother and my observations from class, um, you know, I had recommended to the team that this student not be promoted on to fifth grade. Um, and I had the support of the parent backing me up with that. She agreed. And the team ultimately decided to push the child into fifth grade because the reason was that so many other kids in the school were even further behind than he was, and they were going to be moving on to fifth grade. So they couldn't hold him back if they would be moving them on. And I left that meeting and I just felt like this is wrong. This is just wrong. You know, this child is not prepared 
to go on to the next grade level. And we're, you know, we're doing an injustice to the student. We're lying to this parent because we're going to make her think that he's ready to move on when he's really not. And, and, you know, I felt very powerless as a teacher and I just felt like, you know, it just kind of was like the icing on the cake to say, we have to take a step back here and we have to honestly address the problems with education and, and start doing something about it. People need to speak up because my real concern is that, you know, eventually if, if public education continues to decline, there's going to come a point in time where all of those kids who have another choice, have other options, will leave the public system. And the only ones left in the public system will be the kids that didn't have another choice. And, and that's just not the way it should be. We should have a great education for, for every child. No argument there. I mean, that's, <laughs> a, that's the way it should exist. And it, so and, and do, do you ever really understand why, I mean, did, why they were so adamant about not moving the child forward? I mean, about not keeping the child back. Yeah, I think because I think this is, you know, a nationwide problem. I think that kids are, you know, nationwide are not meeting the standard, the grade level standards. And it's so many kids, I feel like that fall into that category that nobody really wants to be honest about the problem. And so they do just kind of push them through the system and, um, you know, I, it's, I think our test scores, our nationwide test scores, you know, reveal this problem. I mean, if you just look at like the NAEP scores, you know, um, for, from 2019, 41% of fourth graders were proficient or better in math. That number drops to um, 34% of eighth graders. And then it drops to just 24% of 12th graders. And so, you know, to me, that's a red flag that the proficiency levels are going down as kids advance through the system. And I think that's because that gap just continues to grow. And I know as a teacher, you know, in the school I was in every single year, I had kids coming at the beginning of the year who were, you know, at least two grade levels behind where they should have started. And it's, it gets harder and harder to close that gap as that child moves through the system. Uh, most definitely. I mean, having been a high school principal who would reach out to the middle schools that were feeders to me and say, look, if you got some kids that you you're sending forward, just identify them because you know that you're sending them forward, but you're basically saying good luck, <laughs> right. um, then let me know who they are. And you know, you have to create uh, different types of scaffolding and different types of uh, programs to target their, their needs. A lot of times they're, you know, just as one note, they're four or five years behind in academic vocabulary development. And, mm -hmm. and that's going to kill them when they get into, I mean, that first ninth grade science class, if it's biology or something like this, and their vocabulary is that far behind, you know, it's, it's only, I forget that saying about the behinder I get, <laughs> yeah. but it's, uh, you know, it's part of their, their world then, which means that they're a high candidate for dropping out. Right. Right. The, uh, you know, one of the things that you, uh, um, you get into some uh, quite a few aspects that I don't think anyone could argue with that. Uh, um, well, they might, but uh, <laughs> they I'm still, sure some people will. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I can't say nobody. I mean, but they, they still, ex they still are, exist. I mean, it, during your first year as a teacher, you discovered this and I'm um, pulling this out of uh, something you say in the book, you say, 
Students weren't learning how to think, they were learning how to regurgitate information. Can you talk about that, put that in context for the listeners? Sure. Um, the school that I started at my first year had just been named a National Blue Ribbon School. And, um, you know, I quickly discovered sort of how that worked. Um, there was just a huge emphasis on preparing students for the test, whether it was a unit test or the end of the year standardized test. And I just felt like we were always doing that. And to the point where, um, you know, I had an observation and I, a pre-observation meeting with the principal and she looked at a question I was gonna be asking and she said, let's look up how this is gonna be asked on the unit test. And she pulled up the unit test and she had me change the question to be basically a mirror of that unit test question. I mean, in terms of formatting, it had to have the box around it a certain way. It had to have the same font. It, it, everything except for the numbers and the problem and the names were changed. And, and that wasn't a one-time situation. That just was what was occurring. You know, I, I saw um, routinely every week and right before a unit test, kids would get a review that looked exactly like the unit test in the same order as the questions would be asked. And, um, you know, I really felt like, you know, it's one thing to prepare a child for a test to make sure that they are, um, that they can recognize that questions can be asked in different ways. And it's certainly a very appropriate to prepare them for the skills that are going to be on the test. But when you start making their, their thinking so rigid that they have to see the question exactly, you know, as it will later appear on a test, um, I think we're just, we're missing the point of education. You know, we, if we want kids to be, we want people to be critical thinkers, to be able to think flexibly and fluidly, and, and that's going to set them up for the most success in life. And when we're, we're taking that away, when we focus so much on just preparing for a specific test. Most definitely, most definitely. Cause that's, you know, it, it, it's like, uh, um, oh yes, I only have one type of test in my life that right. uh, as an adult and I, I must prepare for that one test. And, right. you know, and the tests we obviously get are of all, all many shapes and sizes and they don't typically don't involve number two pencils, but. Uh, and I uh, also think like it, it, it takes away a child's, you know, they, they become less engaged and, and motivated when it's so much about memorization or just applying step one through five, rather than, you know, having, giving them different opportunities to think and, and, process things the way they want, you know, and try out different methods. So um, there's a, that aspect as well. Oh, I, I think you're totally right. The, uh, you know, throughout the book, you, you get into some other situations that you talk about. And, and so as a teacher, you've experienced some interesting problems from standardized testing to administration that were supposed to be transparent and weren't to issues with technology. And, uh, and let's go there for a minute. I mean, in your book, you note this, the devices often became a distraction from learning rather than a tool to enhance learning. Could you explain what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. um, well, my school district had um, initiated a plan to give every student a one-to-one -one device, and they started with the elementary students. And so I was an elementary teacher, so I was one of the early recipients of this technology. And, um, you know, I... There are some great benefits to technology and to have kids being able to use a device as a tool or a resource in their instruction. But, um, you know, it also opens up 
Pandora's box because it's, if you think about like when I was a student many, many years ago in elementary school, you know, students would get distracted by maybe pulling something out of their desk that they had in there, you know, a piece of paper or a book. And that was it. Whatever was in their desk, that was going to be what they could access. And if they were going to communicate with somebody, you know, they wrote a note and passed it on. Well, we're giving them these computers where information is just open to them. And even though, you know, the district tried to put safeguards in place for what kids could access, um, the kids are amazing with technology and somehow they always <laughs> managed to get around that. And I had kids in fourth grade who were viewing pornography. Um, I had kids who were, you know, playing games on their computer when they were supposed to do, be doing an online assignment. And it's, you know, it's impossible for one teacher to be able to monitor the screens of 26 kids in the room, especially if the kids are moving about, which I always was a big proponent of kids being able to move around the classroom and work in different centers. And, you know, I lots of time in the class, I would be at a, a table working in small group with students. So I couldn't be roaming around the classroom to see the screens if I'm helping six kids at a table. Um, so, you know, I just think it, it, I'm not sure that kids at that age are, first of all, need, need a device all the time as much as, you know, as they were using it in the schools. And it, I don't think that they are necessarily responsible enough to care for the device and use the device at that age. And um, I think it would have been better really if we had spent the money to say, let's give one device for like every four or five kids to, to share and use. Um, I think that would have been a better, a better use of funds. But I am a big proponent of um, older children and older students having devices in the school and, and to be able to take those home and use them and, you know, giving them internet access at home as well. What you said just, just was right on the money as with things that I've experienced, which is that a lot of times the Chromebooks and other types of tablets and things like this or laptops become become that type of distraction where they're simply a, they're a, a tool, uh, not they're more of a game device than a tool. And, uh, you know, and just things like, uh, like you said, they want to do one thing versus what they're really supposed to be doing with it. And you have to keep monitoring that. And then there's other aspects of it as well, which is, uh, you know, is it about entertainment and, and, uh, keeping somebody, a, giving somebody a babysitter in a box? Yes. And you have to realize too, like a lot of the kids that I was teaching um, were coming from homes where they would go home at the end of the school day and there wasn't anyone in, in the, um, where they lived in the apartment or the house. And so they were really using technology a lot outside of school. And I just think at such an early age, you know, there's, there's, we need to foster more collaboration and social interaction than sitting in front of a screen. Uh, makes perfect sense to me that, uh, you know, and, and I kind of flew through a couple of things here that I wish we had some time um, so that I could get to a couple other parts because the, some of the experiences you had with a, uh, um, uh, with a superintendent and such is uh, um, rather in, in interesting because you can kind of see that train wreck getting ready to happen. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but the, uh, it, what I want to get, one of the things I want to get to is uh, you said, uh, uh, can let's talk about what you think about grades versus an indication of knowledge. So the idea there, what do you think about uh, grades indicating knowledge? Um, I think grades are an important one aspect of recognizing knowledge, but um, 
you know, there certainly needs to be, it's not the end all be all. There's other ways to measure whether a student, you know, is understanding and, and progressing. And, um, you know, especially at the elementary level, I think there's, there's a lot of advantages to using descriptive feedback and, and just verbal feedback. I would meet a lot of times in a small group with my students and, and give them just one-to-one -one feedback on how they did something rather than, you know, giving them a grade on a paper. Um, I found too, it was really funny in fourth grade, a lot of kids, you know, you put a fraction, the grades expresses a fraction on a paper. They, they never knew what that meant. So, um, you know, they know a letter grade, but they didn't really understand the fraction. Um, but I think that a lot of things about gradings, grading has really shifted. We've gone to this no zero policy in a lot of districts where there's a minimum score of 50% that a teacher's allowed to give on an assignment. And I don't agree with that. Um, I, well, I should say this. I, I, I understand some of the reasoning behind it because if kids fall too far behind from not doing assignments, it's, it takes away from their motivation to catch up. So, but there's other ways you can combat that. You know, you can give them opportunities to turn in something later. Um, I also think there's a way to maybe on a report card or with a grading system to use that no zero policy, but also to show what the grade would be if you didn't have that policy. And I think that would be a huge motivator to students to say, look, this is the grade that you could earn if you, know, you were turning in all of your work. And this is the grade that you would get without doing your work. And, and I, so I think there's, um, I think sometimes we just go a little too far to the extreme and we've taken away some student responsibility and accountability and we've created a lot of additional work, I think for teachers as well um, with redo assignments and things like that. It's an interesting point that you make in the book. And it's like, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that, that, that you cue in on is the idea that, you know, there, at some point we, you know, the, we have to understand, and this is a huge controversial topic, period, because there are people who their whole careers about um, talking about grades and grading systems and all that sort of stuff. And and it's one of the things that uh, though that a lot of times in a school we haven't agreed as a faculty what grades are all about. Right. Um, and uh, and that in itself is uh, something to have a discussion about it uh, where you have to have some sort of thought that what is it that we're trying to do with the grades? Are they really? Right are we really saying that this is their, you know, what they know about what they're supposed to know about, or is this, you know, a point in time that we're talking about and do they know more at the end? There, there's one of my favorite topics, which is um, if this grade is, you know, they didn't do as well in the beginning and they did better towards the end. Could we change the way we grade so that at the end it's reflecting more of their growth in the process mm -hmm. and such. So there's many different ways of talking about it, but I appreciate you you're talking with me about that because I think it's it's interesting. I think we get caught up sometimes in uh, you know trying to figure out how to get them to pass versus talking about whether we're actually focused on knowledge or not. <laughs> right. It's an interesting, interesting discussion. Um, it, it, something else, and I just had <laughs> it's, it's like uh, it, the deeper I got into your book, the more I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to. So there's like five or six questions that didn't, that didn't make the cut here. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> But uh, could you talk about what you saw as a result of this? You, you say this, under immense pressure, school districts nationwide began to revise school discipline policies, student code of conduct guidelines, and modify or reduce the consequences for behaviors that didn't meet the standards. Um, well, that statement was um, 
following the discussion about a report that was released in July 2011 called the Breaking Schools Rules Report. Um, and the report was revealing results of a study, a large study that had been done in Texas on close to 1 million public secondary students. And they were examining, you know, how many students were suspended or expelled and what was the relationship between those disciplinary actions and then their academic performance and ties to the juvenile justice system. And the, the results of the study showed that um, six in 10 public school secondary students were suspended or expelled at least once between seventh and 12th grade. So that's a significant number by itself. Um, but it also revealed some discrepancies um, between the disciplinary actions for minority students and students of special education. Um, I think they found that African-American students had a 31% greater likelihood of being removed from the classroom and 75% of special education students were suspended or expelled at least once. Um, it, it's so they also found ties to that, that, you know, after looking at those actions, they also saw that um, kids were five times later five times greater, I'm sorry, to drop out of school and six times more likely to be held back and then 10 times more likely to have future contact with the juvenile justice system. So it was some really, you know, very dramatic results that came out of that study. And the Department of Justice and the Department of Education had then formed a collaborative effort to basically reform disciplinary actions to kind of eliminate um, exclusionary discipline, removing students from the classroom or removing them from the school. And they started tracking the data um, from all the school districts around the country on who's getting suspended or expelled, zero tolerance policies, who's getting you know, referred to the criminal justice system. And um, there was a lot of pressure then putting on, put on every school district to lower those numbers. And I think, the emphasis, you know, this is a situation where you, you wanna look at is the policy driving the numbers or are the numbers driving the policy? And my perception was from where I was working that it was the numbers seemed to be driving the policy rather than the other way around. You know, that the emphasis came down, don't remove a student that's acting up from the classroom, you know, avoid writing up office referrals, and in my school, um, you know, it, students very quickly got the message that there weren't any consequences anymore for behavior. And our behavior issues started increasing dramatically in the schools, um, in my school. And also I was hearing, you know, in surrounding schools. And if you just look at research studies, you can see it, it wasn't isolated to Baltimore or Maryland. This, you know, we've had an increase in behavior issues um, nationwide. So, um, you know, I think the intent behind a lot of the policies was good, just like I think the intent, a lot of the things that I talk about in the book, there might have been great intent behind policies and practices, but sometimes the end result isn't, isn't so great or, you know, or there's consequences from it. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, people hear it loud and clear, if, if the directive comes down, whether it's explicit in how it's said or whether it's implied, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the idea that, uh, um, you know, we're not going to be uh, um, instituting some of the practices we have in the past. And, uh, and so, you know, 
does that mean that your discipline referrals go down because you've done a better job of dealing with discipline or does it mean that they've gone down because nobody's reporting what they're dealing with? Right, right. And the numbers definitely dropped in my school and in the district for, um, you know, the number of students being suspended. But um, again, were they dropping for the right reasons? You know, were we solving a problem or just changing the numbers? That I think is the, the huge point right there is that, uh, you know, is this, is, is this accomplishing anything other than uh, making the numbers look good? Right. So, um, this that's just such a powerful section of your book. I, uh, something that I like about your book, by the way, Suzanne, is, is the way you have formatted the, you formatted the chapters with a, with a discussion about a topic, then questions to consider when thinking about the topic and a section that has a story about a child. Can you share a little bit about uh, why you did this, how this formatting came out? Well, I really wanted the book to be um, a tool that could really generate a conversation. My whole goal is that people start talking about their problems that they see, ideas they have, and, and start advocating for change. So I didn't want it to just be a bunch of facts and, and nothing to do with those facts. So at the end of um, each of those topics, I do have questions that people can use, um, whether they're a parent or an educator that they can, you know, hopefully maybe use as a starting point for a conversation. Um, and then the student stories were really there because the students are why we need to change the system and make it better. You know, and we, we can't just, I, I think a lot of times people that are, you know, at the higher levels and making these policies, they are missing that point. They are missing really just the human um, component of it. And, you know, the, they don't really understand how important education is to some of these kids in terms of, um, for some kids, it provides, you know, a safe place for them during the day. Um, you know, for other kids, it's their really only opportunity for a better life. And so those stories are in there really to kind of just remind us of all of us of the need to, to improve the system. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, you know, uh, uh, one of the things, uh, that I want to make sure that, it, uh, um, I get it. And by the way, it works very nicely. I, I want to make sure I say that I, it, it, the way you've laid everything out in the book, because it, uh, it works nicely and it kind of gives you a, you know, some think some things <laughs> kind of gives you some thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yes. That'd, that'd be better, Steve. And, uh, um, about, uh, you know, it brings you back to the child because you have these stories about uh, a child and, and their interactions and such. And, and I love that. And I, and I like the part that uh, makes you kind of kind of rethink what you just read and so forth where you have those questions. Um, so um, kudos on, on that formatting of that. It does, it's a powerful part of the book. So thank you. Um, let's talk about this. If a parent and or teacher thinks that something needs to be addressed at their school or school system, what advice would you give them about addressing it, getting started? Yeah. Um, well, I would say I, I have the second half of the book is um, really, I lay out step-by-step what a parent could really go through or, or an educator could go through to, to advocate for something. And um, it's a 10 step guide and I, it is just a guide. Um, but the first four steps have nothing to do with really like starting. You don't start the conversation until step five because there's so much that needs groundwork that needs to be done first. You know, you really need to understand what is the root cause behind a problem that you see. And you have to do your research and you also really need to work hard to come up with a solution yourself, you know, because nobody wants to hear someone else just complain. <laughs> so if you're going to bring forth a problem, bring forth a solution with it, at least an idea for a solution. And 
the more that you can prove that that solution will be academically beneficial um, and maybe have some offset um, cost savings in another area, the, the more likely people are to listen to it because everybody's looking for what's going to improve academics and what's going to, you know, how can we save on cost in another area. So um, those are just some things I would definitely suggest to somebody. Um, and then gain support, you know, gain support from your peers, um, other groups that have a similar interest to, to what you're trying to advocate for. Um, because there is strength in numbers and, you know, that will really help to get people to listen to you and, and hear what you have to say. Excellent. Excellent advice. Uh, Suzanne, before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where would you send them? Um, they should go to my website, SuzanneDemalley.com and Demalley is D-E-M-A-L-L-I-E. And if they go to the website, they can contact me through that. They can um, access links to my social media and they can get a lot of information even on um, the, some of the hearing issues that we were talking about. So, Excellent. Excellent. I'll have links in my show notes to that information. So, uh, so they'll be able to find that there as well. Uh, um, I've got a couple of questions that I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this, Suzanne, as we finish up, um, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Um, I think you have to just, you know, for me personally, it's always thinking about the student or the child. You know, I, what kept me going um, when I was advocating for the hearing issues is I just, I had seen the detrimental effects to my son from the inability to understand what he could hear. And I thought there's other kids sitting in classrooms who are experiencing the same thing. And even in doing, you know, writing this book and promoting it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of scary for me because I am, like you said, I'm, I'm writing about a lot of things that some people are, um, you know, maybe not going to be happy with, and I'm, I'm questioning the status quo, but I just keep in mind those students that I believe deserve something better. Gotcha. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Hmm. <laughs> um, I have a few teachers, but Probably my elementary music teacher actually had a really profound impact on my life. Um, you know, she just she just um, gave me opportunities. Music was kind of my thing in elementary school, and she gave me opportunities to to use that in different ways, and just really always encouraged me um, to kind of go to a higher level. And and I think that's what a a teacher, a good teacher does, you know, they provide opportunities and they, they help to push you along, um, to achieve something greater. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Uh, Suzanne, thank you so much for talking with me today. Your book, Can You Hear Me Now? Join the Conversation to Make Public Education a Better Choice, addresses many issues in and around school that uh, need to be looked at deeply. Uh, your book is helpful and inspiring. You provide awesome questions to ponder and share your personal experiences that all make for an incredible, thought-provoking read for educators and parents alike. I'm wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you very much. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio. Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. 
Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Thank you.